Okay, so uh, when I was in the ninth grade, I had this scooter, and it was called a jog. That was the name of the scooter. The reason it was called a jog is because if you were jogging, you'd be able to blow right past me on the road. This was like the slowest scooter in the history of all mankind. Well, uh, in ninth grade, I was on the football team in my uh, high school, and we had practice. It started raining and lightning, so... Uh, after probably halfway through the practice. So the coach called practice off, told us all to go home. And I hopped on the jog and started driving home in the rain. Now, the problem is, uh, number one, I was sweating. So there's like all this heat coming off my body. I put on a helmet because you had to wear a helmet in those days. Um, I put on a helmet, hop on the scooter. So pouring rain and then heat emanating from my head. And so the inside of the, uh, you know, the visor on the helmet starts fogging up. And then there's rain on the outside. And now, if you notice, you know, uh, helmets don't really come with, like, windshield wipers. All right? We agree on that. So you had to kind of, like, be your own windshield wipers. So, you know, I'd drive with one hand and kind of, you know, the inside, get that kind of dealt with. And then, you know, get the rain out and then switch hands and then get the rain out and then deal with the inside of it and the whole thing. And (coughs) it was raining really hard and I could barely see uh, a few feet in front of me. What I didn't notice was that there was this car that had slammed on its brakes. Now, before I want to tell you, before I tell you what happens, I want to tell you about the car. You know, like, I mean, this was, I was in the ninth grade, so we're talking about like 1989. I know that's like a million years ago. Uh, but anyway, so this is a, this is a while ago. And um, this is like an, one of those, the car was like 20 years old at the time. It's one of those big Oldsmobiles. Um, you, and you know, back when cars were made out of real material, they weren't made out of the same material that my son's like uh, remote control Lightning McQueen is made out of, like that little plastic. It was made out of like real metal. And then the, uh, the bumper was made out of real metal. You know, anyway, so, and then there were no seatbelts. Your mom just went like that. That's how, that was, that's the only airbag you needed. Anyway, so that's kind of what we were dealing with, all right? So I didn't, I'm trying to get the, the, the rain out of my, out of my view and the, the fog out of my view, and I slam into the back of the Oldsmobile. Now, as I'm falling down, remember, there's the, like a metal um, uh, a bumper, right? Or, you know, there are fenders, so the bumpers. And then as I'm falling, the metal cuts into the plastic handlebars on my scooter. So it hooks on. Now, the weird part is this car was so big, they didn't even feel the fact that I had hit the back of their car. So they start going, <coughs> and they're dragging me down the street. And, I, you know, and I'm like, hey! Help me! Stop your car! And nothing. They don't hear anything because they have their windows up because it's pouring rain. So then I start slamming my hand. I, can, I pull myself up and I start slamming my hand on the back of their, of their trunk. To which finally they feel like, oh, we've, we've sent, we sense something. What's going on out there? So they stop and then they all they, so they slow down and they see like this hand. And they're, we're, they say, oh, you know, we, we stopped. We saw this hand in our rearview mirror, and we thought something was wrong. Like, of course something's wrong. Anyway, uh, so they stop, and uh, are you okay? <laughs> well, not really. So they get me out from the pile, and then they pull the scooter out. And uh, you, know, you want to know what adds really ins- adds, My scooter was totally smashed. Um, what really adds insult to the injury is that their car did not even have a scratch. Uh, that's how, like, hardcore this car was, you know, back then. Anyway, so um, so they helped me up, you know, and I'm still far. And the, the, the jog, 
was much more of a limp after that day. Um, thankfully, I sold that jog to a kid in my class like two weeks later. And then a month later, I saw him walking to school. So you can figure out what happens there. Uh, but, so, but here's the thing. Now, um, this is how we view, many times, this is how we view conflict. Two people disagree. Boom. And then what happens? Well, the way to, to, to uh, fix it is I just drag them until they understand my point. And we just kind of keep butting heads. And then finally, once I share enough of, you know, my logic, they will see that I am right. They will admit that I'm right. And the whole concept of them having original thoughts is not really necessary because they just need to listen to me. Right? Okay. And, and if we think like that, we probably have no friends. Um, now, but here, here's the thing. And, and this is the reason why I think this is so important. And I, I mentioned this last week as we started this whole series called Baggage, right? Is that no one wants to look back in the rearview mirror of their life and just see a body count of relationships that they didn't fix because either they didn't know how to fix it or worse yet, they didn't want to fix it. And we need to learn how to have conflict the right way. We need to learn how to reconcile relationships that are strained or hurting or broken. And that's why this book that we started last week, this little one chapter book in the Bible called Philemon is so important because it's a case study on how to reconcile a relationship that's broken. And uh, for those of you that weren't here last week, or maybe you were here last week and you forgot already, let me just give you a little bit of the backstory to this book that I think just makes it so much fun uh, to, to, to read. Uh, Philemon, which is who the book is named to and the, who, the, who this letter is written to, is a guy who lived in a city called Colossae, uh, which is in, if you're a you know, geography guy, it's in, today would be in, in uh, the country of Turkey, but it was called Asia Minor back then. And he was, in, um, he was from Colossae. The Apostle Paul uh, went to this area of Colossae on his second missionary journey, and uh, he, he established a church in Colossae. He, he met this guy named Philemon, shared the gospel with Philemon. Philemon gave his life to Jesus, and then uh, Philemon uh, had all of these, um, had, as a wealthy guy in, in Colossae, he had these slaves, and one of them was named Onesimus. Now you say, hold on, did you say slaves? Are you, are you telling me that the Bible is condoning slavery? Now, I told you last week I would talk about this, and I didn't really talk about it last time, so I'm going to talk about it this time. Now, uh, let me share a couple of things about um, slavery, because here's one of the things that people who don't believe the Bible or people who want to dismiss Christianity, they'll use something like slavery and say, okay, how can you really live by such an archaic book that promotes slavery? Can I just tell you a couple of things? Number one, um, I am against slavery, okay? I'm going to go out on a limb and say everybody in this room, is a, there, there's, no, there's not one pro-slavery person here. I'm just going to go out on a limb. I'm going to guess that we're all anti-slavery. We all believe that it's wrong. Um, but slavery, I will also say this, slavery in the first century where this was written was very much different than what we saw in this country 150 years ago. Um, the Bible does not condone slavery like we saw it in the United States, you know, around civil war and, and all of that. Um, but slavery was a reality in the Roman world in which the New Testament was written. Okay. Um, history tells us that there were upwards of 60 million slaves in uh, the Roman Empire at the time of the writing of the New Testament or the first century, which, by the way, was one out of three people. Now, um, in Roman culture, every race of people had slaves and every race of people were slaves. But race was, uh, uh, slavery was not based on race and it was never for life. 
also, you could become a slave for many different reasons. Many of them were voluntary. Let's say you owed someone money. Um, there was no chapter 11, right? You weren't calling the credit clinic, all right, you know, to, uh, to set up a payment plan. You paid what you owed. That was it. Well, I don't know. I don't I, What am I going to do? I can't pay what I owe. Well, then you had to figure out a way. And one of the ways that you could pay your debt is to say, hey, here's what I will do. I will become your slave. Essentially, I will work for you for a series, of, a period of time, and then until my debt is paid off, right? Until your debt is paid off, whatever it is. And so Philemon, who's this wealthy guy, he has a slave, a guy who probably owed him money, and he's paying off the debt, named Onesimus. Onesimus decides he's not going to pay his debt. He's going to run away. He runs away, and later... He's caught in Rome um, by the authorities. He's put in jail. Now, the weird part is, is that he gets put in jail, and the person that he gets sat next to is the Apostle Paul, who is also in jail. And you know what he does? He preaches the gospel to Onesimus. Onesimus gives his life to Jesus. And then, you know, over the course of time, you know, when guys are in prison, you know, they're, it's like, so why are you in the clink? And because uh, I'm guessing that's the ancient word for prison is the clink. Um, so, you know, why are you, why are, you know, why are you here in prison? And, uh, and so the apostle Paul would say, well, I was in Jerusalem in the temple and, um, you can read all this about in the book of Acts chapters 20 through 28, but, uh, he's in, he's in, he's in the temple and there's some people there that say, this guy's trying to start a riot, which he wasn't, but they tell him he's trying to start a riot. And so they have him arrested. And then Paul shares how Jesus changed his life. And that, that's, that's, all, that's the whole reason why he's back in Jerusalem. And then there's these guys that had decided that they were going to either eat nor drink until Paul was dead. So they actually move him to uh, this area called Caesarea. And then he kind of gives his, uh, he, he shares with the governor there. And then uh, there's this guy named Agrippa who comes in. He shares his whole story again. And then it comes to be known that he's not really going to get a fair trial. Paul, being a Roman citizen, one of the things that you could do, one of like the, the trump cards that you had as a Roman citizen is that if you didn't feel like you were getting a fair trial, you could always just say, hey, I appeal to Caesar. And so you could, you, you could actually have your case heard by the uh, most powerful authority in the, in the world at that time, in the Roman world, which is to have Caesar himself look at your case. And so when he realizes that he wasn't going to get a fair trial, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And they said, if you appeal to Caesar, then to Caesar you will go. And so he finally ends up in Rome on what we would basically call house arrest, waiting for his day in court. That's when Onesimus shows up and when he shares the gospel with him. So he says, well, that's why I'm here. And so he says, but Onesimus, why are you here? Well, I'm on the run from, um, uh, from my master uh, Philemon because uh, I'm from Colossae. And he says, oh, you, you, you're on the run from Philemon from Colossae? Yeah. Hey, Philemon from Colossae, he's a good buddy of mine. He is? Yeah, I shared, that's how he became a Christian. I shared the gospel with him. No kidding. And so now Paul realizes that the primary reason for him to meet Onesimus was to share the gospel with him, for him to come to know Jesus. But the secondary issue was for him to restore this relationship that had been broken between Onesimus and Philemon. And that so Paul's role was to play the role of mediator to help this relationship be restored. And listen, if you're a Christian, can I tell you something? That that's part of what you do. That's part of how we need to be equipped. That's why this message is so important for us. Uh, and I put it in your notes in, in 2 Corinthians uh, 5.18. It says this. It says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of 
of reconciliation. And what's amazing about the book of Philemon is this, is that we're going to read, the, the verses we're going to read in this, in this pint-sized book give us the steps to reconciliation. So if you're in a marriage that's on the rocks, you have a friendship that's on the fritz, you have a family member that's totally gone sideways, listen, we, we, we need to listen carefully because God wants to give us the tools by His grace to resurrect that relationship and see it thrive again. And let me say this, you might be here and you say, well, I'll be honest with you, my relationships are pretty good with my family, as crazy as they are, and with my friends, as strange as they might be, and my spouse, as much as she's wrong, um, you know, or you might think, um, my relationships are pretty good. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have a friend or a family member um, that their relationships aren't that good? Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I have this one family, they're, they're nuts. And uh, okay, then maybe, maybe. What God, God has you here for a different purpose. He wants you to be equipped so that you, so that you can be like the Apostle Paul and actually mediate between two people that are having a difficult time and help them be reconciled one to another. And listen, the point is this, that God wants to use you. He wants to use you to reconcile relationships that you have, to, to step in and reconcile relationships with people that you know, because he's given us this ministry of reconciliation to help us live in harmony and peace. So I'm going to invite you to open to uh, the book of Philemon. We're going to start in verse 8. So if you'd open your Bible or you have your Bible app, um, you can open it at that time. If you have an iPhone, we know you love God. And uh, if you have a droid, then these are not the droids you're looking for. Um, So anyway, um, standard Star Wars reference number one. Uh, We're going to start in verse 8. So here's where we begin. Therefore, Though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I've begotten while in my chains. So if you pause there and give me your attention, here's, I'm going to give you five things. We're going to be five points today that I want to show you about reconciling a relationship. And here's the first one. The first one is to take the place of humility. Take the place of humility. One of the times, sometimes the reason that we get into relationships that go sideways is because we're actually taking the place of authority. We're taking the place of law instead of taking the place of love. And one of the underlying themes of the Bible is that God opposes pride. I put it in your notes in in James chapter four. It says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. And I want you to notice something in these verses, that Paul doesn't start commanding people and telling them what to do. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Paul, and you're going to do what I tell you. That's not not where he begins. Instead, he appeals to Philemon. And what is an appeal? An appeal is when you approach someone in gentleness and love rather than authority and rules. And what he knows is this. I mean, honestly, he's the apostle Paul. He wrote half of the New Testament. You know, the truth is, is that if Paul says to do something, you're probably going to do it. And he could have said, hey, guess what? Jesus appeared to me on the road. Did he ever appear to you? No. I wrote 13 books of the New Testament. How many did you write? Well, none. Try to get one, you know, published, but not working out. You know, okay. Uh, And then, and then, um, so the church you go to, I started it. The Apostle Paul says, so, you know, how about you? Well, you know, didn't do that, Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you to do something, and you're going to do it, okay? 
all right, you know, yeah, that sounds about right. You know, no, it's not, he could do that, but he doesn't. Instead of just coming with authority and rules and law, he, he appeals to him. And he says, Philemon, here's, here's what I want you to do. Listen, I'm asking you to do this. I mean, I'm Paul, not the, the apostle, not Paul, the church planner, not Paul, the authoritarian. I'm Paul, the aged. Listen, man, I've been around for a while. And I'm just asking that maybe we could, you could approach this situation from the place, not of authority, but from the place of humility. I've worked with um, parents and, and kids who, who are grown up. But, you know, and that becomes a very different dynamic in the relationship. But this is the, this, but when, when parents and kids are estranged, um, this is like the hardest part to understand, especially for parents. Because we, we have this, um, this thing where, where we think, well, you know, this, you've got to approach this because you're a parent, you approach it based on authority. And that's not, that didn't work. So what we do is we come based on more authority and louder authority. And that's what's going to do it. And guess what? It doesn't do it. And so, you know, kids reach adulthood and you can't just command them to do the things in the name of, well, I'm your mother and that's what you're going to do. Well, that worked when they were in elementary school. You know, now they're 40. Okay? And that ain't going to work. You know? And so, listen, so here's, so here's the challenge. So now, this is what, one of the reasons why parents and kids have, have broken relationships is because mom and dad are still trying to parent their kids like they're seven. They're not seven. Even if they act like they're seven sometimes, they're, they're not actually, they're, they're not. And so listen, and this is the challenge for parents. The challenge for parents is to humble themselves and say, listen, as a parent, there's, there's, there's always a, a, a sense of authority. But I'm not going to approach you on this a sense of authority. In fact, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to approach you based on relationship because the way you parent when you get older is different than when your kids are four, five, and six. It's you, you, you parent based on influence and trust and relationship. It's not authoritarian anymore. And so what Paul does is he says this, he says, okay, look, I'm going to come to you, but it's going to be based on humility. It's not going to be based on authority. It's going to be based on love. It's not going to be based on law. It's not going to be based on rules. It's going to be based on relationship. And, and, and what I want you to do is to, to, just, to just hear me out and hear what I have to say because I want to make this better. So that's the first thing. The second thing he does is look at verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, whom was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Now, here's the second thing um, that, that's, that's, important, uh, that's important to note. Is, um, and that is this. The, the, the second thing is to believe that God can change people. You've got to believe that God can change people. Um, there's two words in these two verses that we read that I think are the two most important. He says this in verse 11. Who once was unprofitable to you, but now. But now is profitable to you. And see, can I just tell you this? Um, there's a wordplay that happens in the original language that we can, that we can miss. Um, because the name Onesimus means profitable. And so what Paul does, he says, hey, you know, Onesimus, you know, profitable? Profitable well, used to be unprofitable, but now he's profitable to you and me. And he's like, okay, I, I see what's going on here, but, but why is that? Why? Because he believes, he believes that God can change people. Now, here's what you and I believe. We believe that God can change us. We believe that, that we can change. 
We believe that we can grow, that we can mature, that, we, that things can get better, that we can make better choices, that, that we can do better than we've done in the past. But here's what happens. Sometimes we think that that just stops with us. But then when you talk about other people, well, you know, people don't change. Do you believe you change? Oh, yeah, I'm changing all the time. It's amazing how much I'm changing. What about people don't change? Well, you know, that's them. Not me. I change. I change all the time. Not them. Those losers are never going to change. Not me, though. Um, Now, but here's what we do. We believe that we can change. Listen, we've got to believe that people can change. If, (laughs) If you've become a Christian, you can note from the time you became a Christian until now the things that have changed in your life. It could be simple things. Things that now people would think, oh, that's, that's such a, smart, a small thing. Yeah, but back then it was big. Uh, when I became a Christian, my, my older brother, um, he, he, he led me to Jesus and uh, prayed with me in his kitchen in, in Boston where, where he lives, uh, where I'm from. And um, that, that night that I became a Christian, my, my wife and I, we were just dating at the time, but we, um, we prayed to receive Christ. And then uh, shortly after, we went to a baseball game. Um, and... Some of you know I'm a big baseball fan, but um, but I was in Boston and I had tickets to go to Fenway that night. And so, now here's the thing you have to understand about me is that before becoming a Christian, I mean, I used to cuss like a sailor. And any of my friends that you could ask that knew me back then knew I could not put one sentence together without some four-letter word or the derivative or some kind of colorful metaphor coming out. Um, you know, now... The only four-letter words now are like R2-D2, C-3PO. Anyway, um, but uh, second and third references. Um, so um, there's a pastor that listens to these uh, messages and sends me, hey, three references this week, um, this, which leads me to believe, like, what are you doing with your time? Uh, but anyway, that's not here nor there. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but here's the thing is that so... Um, so Roger Clemens was pitching that night. This is, back when he, this is in 1993, back when he still played for the Sox, and, uh, who was my favorite player of all time until he signed with the Yankees, and I hated his guts um, because I know that's what God wanted. Um, and so anyway, uh, <laughs> so what happens is this, is that um, I'm there, he's pitching, and uh, so I'm really excited. I mean, Fenway was just going crazy because he was still, you know, at, the, at his prime um, back then. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, the umpire makes a call I didn't like. I remember this, this moment so vividly. This umpire makes a call I didn't like. And then, and I stand up. And these are, you know, now watching games, this is when I, my language would get particularly salty. And um, I, he makes a call I didn't like. And I stand up and I go, you know, yeah. and I just stopped and looked around. And then I sat down. Now I was with Carrie and we had been dating for a few months and, she looked at me kind of weird because this is where I'd like go nuts. And she turns to me. She's like, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm okay. I said, but I don't think God wants me to talk like that anymore. I'd been a Christian for three hours. I had never read a verse. Thou shalt not cuss like a sailor, right? I'm pretty sure that, I don't even know if that's in the Bible, but anyway, it, it, maybe it should be. Um, but I, I hadn't, I had, you know, and I, God had already started changing me. And I hadn't read a Bible verse, hadn't heard a sermon about it, you know, hadn't had someone, you know, come to me, brother in love, I wanted to, pro-, you, know, you know, those people? I want to punch those people. But I can't say that because then they'll come up to me like, brother in love, you know, 
Uh, you know, you know those people. Um, <laughs> okay. Center yourself. Okay, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, so here's the thing. So here's the thing is that, you know, right? I, hadn't, I knew very little about the Bible. And God had already begun to change me. And here's the point. If you want a case study on how God changes people, if you're a Christian, look at your own life. Look at the lives of the people that you know that are believers. And you can say, man, God's really transformed them. And if he transforms them, then he can transform the person that I'm having conflict with. Because if we think they're never going to change, and no matter what I say, it's not going to work, then you're going in thinking it's already done. But listen, when a person comes to know Jesus, you know what I love? This is one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, Therefore, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Man, that's awesome. And if there is a relationship that's strange, we have to approach them in humility and believing that God has the power to change a human life. Look what he says again in verse 12. Paul says this. Now, this is the big, the big issue right here. And, and this is where he's putting himself out. He says this in verse 12. I'm sending him back. That's Onesimus. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on, behalf, on your behalf he might minister to me in my change for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. Now, here's the, here's the third point, and that is this. Challenge people to take a step. If you want to reconcile a relationship that's broken, you've got to challenge people at some point to take a step. Uh, about two, two and a half years ago, I had two, of my, two members of my family um, who weren't speaking. And they had been as close as two people could be. But, you know, a couple of arguments gone bad. Someone says something they shouldn't. And next thing you know, uh, they hadn't spoken for over a year. And uh, so I got them together. And we just, because I, I said, you know, we, I, it's impossible that you guys don't talk, you know. Um, and then, like, they would call me and, like, hey, so-and-so. so and so like, why don't you call them? I'm like, no, no, no. I'm not, you, do, you know what they did. And then they kind of give you the whole thing. And Well, eventually, um, this kind of went on. I was hoping it would kind of take care of itself, but it didn't. So I said this. I said, listen, um, I want to, I called one of them, and I said, I want to invite you to a meeting. Uh, it's going to be you, me, and this other person. And uh, we're going we're gonna to try to work this out. Are you open? And they're like, do you know what they did? Now, let me tell you what happened. And then they give me the whole thing. Yes, you're right. Yes, they're a horrible person. I get it. And, uh, but do you agree? And I, they say, well, okay. Are they into it? They've already said yes. Okay, then I'll do it. Say, listen, can I call you right back? Yes, okay. I got to call the other person. I hadn't called them yet. And so I'm like, hey, listen, um, I need you to come to a meeting. And, uh, and, and I need, really need you because so that it, it doesn't seem, so I'm not lying. So I need you to say yes. And, um, so will you, <laughs> I already said you would come. And, uh, so would you come to the, okay, fine. And, uh, so we get together and you know, I mean, sometimes life is like a sitcom, uh, except not that funny. And, uh, because here's what happens. What happens is, is that we, I sit down, the three of us and, uh, <laughs> and they're, because you know how some people, and, and this, is, this, is what, this is why I say it lives like a sitcom. The three of them were sitting there, right? And they're like, you know, some people just have to understand how things are supposed to work. Some people need to know that there are boundaries. Oh, some people know there are boundaries. 
But some people have to understand what disrespect is. Oh, they know what disrespect is. But they just have to know that you just can't encroach on someone's space and think that it's going to work out. Oh, they know about encroaching. Don't even get them started about what they know about encroaching. Oh, I'm not started about encroaching. And I'm thinking like, there's only three of us. You don't need a decoder ring to know who's talking about who. And so anyway, I let this go on because I actually enjoyed a little bit of it. Um, And so this goes on, right? And then I say, okay, um, here's the deal. The two of you have two choices. Okay, here's what it is. You can either be right or right the relationship. You can't have both. That's it. If you want to be right, then just let me leave right now because I can't help you. And we can just continue this going on infinitum. Or you can decide, instead of being right, I want to right the relationship. And you need to approach this with humility that maybe you were wrong. Okay, can can we start there? But I need to hear from you that you want to right the relationship. And that's when the tears started. And they started to cry, and, and I, I got, you know, I got a little salt in my eye. Um, I don't know what happened there, but, um, but, here, here's, but here's what happened, is that then I, we were able to really start working through some things. And here's what it was. It was, well, someone went too far, kind of violated a boundary issue. The other person fired back and said something. Uh, disrespectful. Then the other person said something that was very hurtful. Then the other person said something that was twice as hurtful. And we went eye for an eye and all that. And we were off to the races until then somebody finally said, I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. That's it. And I don't want to see you again. And, and, and the issue is this, is that it, you see, the thing is that it doesn't get fixed. If you just call them and say, listen, I know, and I know they're bad and I know what they did, but we got to fix it. No, no, no. You got to challenge people to take a step. Here's what Paul does. Hey, you know, Onesimus, oh man, I don't want to see that guy. I'm sending him back, huh? I'm sending him back and you're going to receive him and we're going to work this thing out because you guys are now brothers. It's not just a, you know, employer, employee relationship. You guys are now brothers in Christ and you got to work this thing out. And so I'm sending him back and he doesn't want to go because he's embarrassed. And if Philemon doesn't want him to go because he's upset and there's, there's all this, I get it. But you got to challenge. You got to challenge that they're willing, or they challenge, challenge them enough to forgive. You got to challenge them to spend some time together. And that was the thing when these two family members they agreed to. Um, that was so it was. They had my, I had these three challenges for them. One, they had to be at the meeting. Two, they had to forgive each other. And three, they had to go spend some time together. So once it was all set, I'm like, I'm leaving, and you guys are going to go have lunch. And uh, they both called me later and were like, Hey, it was good. It was just like it was like the most awkward lunch ever. Like, we spent 20 minutes talking about rolls. You know, like, wow, these rolls. You know, these, this restaurant really makes good rolls. You know, the rolls used to be circular. Now they're square. So weird. You know, I went to a restaurant one time that they're triangular rolls. How do they do that? Man, you know what would be awesome is if they made whole wheat rolls. That would just blow people's minds. And, I mean, that was kind of the whole thing. You're like, wow, that, I'm glad I wasn't there. And, uh, and, and here's the thing is that... But you challenge them. Now their relationship is better than it's ever been because they just decided to, listen, you've got to challenge people to take a step. And if it's you and somebody else, you've got to challenge both of you to take a step. Why? Because and here's the thing. And let me just say this. Um, 
well, what if I don't feel like it? Do it anyway. You know why? Because your feelings are not the best indicator of what you should do. Because feelings change all the time. And, and, and sometimes we feel like, <coughs> excuse me, we feel like, oh, you know, it's just because love is such a powerful motivator. You know, that love is a feeling that you feel when you feel a feeling you never felt before. And you know that that's, that's something. And I'm always, mo- you know, okay, but you know that that even changes. There's like a preliminary kind of love, like a real, you know, surfacey kind of love. When I started dating my wife, I mean, we, um, we, we, went, we went to the movies, and I remember I held her hand. I was so nervous to hold her hand. And then the first time we went to a restaurant, and, and uh, man, I had butterflies in my stomach. I could barely eat. Don't worry, I've gotten over it. Uh, okay, and here's the thing. He's, like, well, he's really conquered that one. Um, <clears throat> now, could you imagine if those feelings never went away? I get home from the office and I sit down at dinner and it's like, you know, honey, I'm I'm so nervous being here. You know, no, you get over it. And instead of being kind of a surfacey love, it gets because something deeper and something better and something more mature and something awesome. That's why feelings are not the best indicator of what we should or shouldn't do. Instead, decide that you're going to do the right thing. And you know what's amazing? When you decide to do the right thing, the feelings will follow. That's what's amazing about it. Now, look what Paul says in verse 15. He says this, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Now, here's the fourth one. And that is this. If you're going to reconcile a relationship, find find God's work in the circumstance. Find God's work. Paul, here's what he's doing. He's helping Philemon see the big picture. And I mentioned this last week, that when someone hurts us, when someone sins against us, here's what we do. We actually focus on the thing that they said, the thing that they did, and we just replay it, replay it, replay it, replay it. And then, but here's what we need to do. We need to actually pull the lens back, pull it back so that we can see the big picture. That maybe Onesimus came to know Jesus when he ran away. Doesn't mean that him running away was good. But even in his sinful act, God was able to sanctify it and make it something good because God had a grander purpose in all of this. Wasn't that the story of Joseph? He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was falsely accused of rape. He was thrown into prison wrongfully. And then after 13 years, he's made second in command in Egypt. And had that not happened, his family would have died of a famine. But instead, because all of this happened, when his family was looking for food, he was there to provide for them. Does that mean that, oh man, it was God's will for God, for for his brothers to throw him in there? No, it was a horrible thing. But what I'm saying is that even in the midst of terrible things that can happen in the course of human relationships, God can redeem them and turn them into something wonderful. That's why Joseph would just say, man, I could focus on that moment when you sold me into slavery, and I can focus on that moment when Potiphar's wife accused me of rape, and I can focus on that moment when I got thrown into prison, or I can pull the lens back and say what he says here in Genesis 50. But as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. In order to bring, a, bring it about as it is this day and to save many people alive. You see, um, 
there's something that happens when we just fixate on ourselves. It's like we just, we, we can only focus on us, on what happened to us. And what happens is, you know, it, it, whenever you just focus on yourself, it just, it, it, it distorts every other picture around you. It distorts every other person around you. And the point is, is that if we, if we only look at ourselves and our situation and how we felt, we will not see God's perspective. We will not see the big picture. And that's why what Paul tells Philemon, what God would tell us is pull the lens back and see this, that maybe Onesimus left. That was wrong. But maybe God used it so that he would come to know Jesus, so that then he could come back. And you know what? When you receive him, you're not just receiving him as an employee. You're receiving him as a brother. And listen, the ability to look beyond your own hurt and see what God is doing is a sign of real spiritual maturity. And it is an absolute must if you want to reconcile a relationship that's broken. And now let me read to you this last part, which I think is one of the most powerful verses in the whole Bible. Look at verse 17. He says, if you then count me as a brother, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you would owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have the joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now, if you pause there, here's the last thing I want to show you about reconciling a relationship. Number five, be willing to pay a price. Verse 18 to me is one of the most powerful verses in all the Bible because he says to, to Philemon, Philemon, I'm sending Onesimus back. I want you to receive him, but I want you to know this, that if you still feel wronged, if you still feel like you can't forgive him, if you say, man, that guy owes me, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to put it on my account and I'll pay for it. So if he owes you some time, then here, I'll give the time. If he owes you some money, then I'll give the money. But here's, that, that's what I want you to understand. Charge it to me. And listen, if you want to reconcile with someone, here's the reality. There may be a price to pay. You know, you, you're probably going to never hear if you reconcile, you know, if you uh, have conflict with someone, you know, probably, here's what you're probably not going to hear. You're probably not going to hear, you know, after careful consideration... I've realized that you're right about everything. You know, you're probably not going to hear that as much as you might want to hear that. In fact, that rarely happens, but here's the principle. The thing I've been saying over and over, you can either be right or you can right the relationship, but you can't have both. You want to be right? That's fine. And you can be all alone and be right. Or you can right the relationship, and that might mean paying a price. But if you decide to, to do it, if you decide to right the relationship, you know what you'll be? You'll be the thing that Jesus talked about. When Jesus talked about what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be happy? In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what he said. This is uh, chapter 5, verse 9. He said, blessed are, oh, how happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. By the way, that doesn't say peacekeepers. 
That doesn't mean, well, you don't want to say anything to them. You say anything to them, they go crazy, so don't say anything. No, no, no. He's not saying, oh, blessed are you if you keep the peace. No, blessed are you if you're able to walk into a situation where there is disharmony and discord and create peace. That's the person that Jesus says is blessed. The person who pursues peace. The person who seeks to make peace. Why? Because in seeking to resolve conflict, in seeking to unite those who were once divided, we are reflecting the God who made peace with us. And you know this, that Hebrew word for peace is the Hebrew word shalom. The shalom is much more than just the absence of conflict. It's much bigger than that. It's about wholeness inside and out. It's about wholeness, knowing that things are right between you and God. And to the best of your ability, things are right between you and the people around you. Paul would say this in the book of Romans chapter 8. It's the last verse in your outline. So So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting your the spirit controls your mind leads to life and peace. If you have a that term, well this lack of peace, and in fact the, the, the word that's used for worry in the New Testament um, is a is a word that means this a divided mind. Literally a mind that's in pieces, a mind that's in shambles. It's the exact opposite of what shalom is, which is which is wholeness, which is peace. And if you have a relationship that remains unreconciled, then you know what I'm talking about. They walk into a room and you're in the room and you're not, you guys aren't talking. And what is there? There's a knot in your stomach and you're like, oh man, oh, this is, it, you're, you're in pieces over it. You know, you're, you're in somewhere and then someone brings up their name and it's like they just ran their nails on the chalkboard. And you're like, oh, I just, man, that, why? Because things aren't whole. And when there's disharmony and discord, there is never wholeness. That's why God calls us to be peacemakers. That's why he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The ability to heal broken relationships and restore them. But my friends, I want to tell you where that begins. That begins in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We were created to know God. And sin, when we fall short, when we make mistakes, when we just mess up, when we fall short of God's standard, that severs the relationship. But the wonderful thing that we celebrate this upcoming week is that Jesus died for us so that the relationship could be restored, so that there could be wholeness and peace. Let's pray together. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for the fact that you don't leave us broken in disarray instead you seek you offer us wholeness and peace and healing you offer us restoration reconciliation in our relationship with you you give us the tools by your spirit to reconcile with those who are who are around us those whom we love those whom we know and god i pray that for those who are here that have never made a decision to follow you, that have never made a decision to be forgiven by you, that God may today be the day that that reconciliation process begins. In Jesus' name.